Ever wondered what unicorns eat for breakfast? Okay, so I don't actually know. But I do know that 20% of all unicorn startups are using HubSpot. And for good reason. HubSpot's all-on-one platform levels up your sales, software, and support. Plus, they have a huge collection of resources to help startups scale. And with the HubSpot for Startups program, you could save big off your first year. To see if you're eligible to save on HubSpot, visit HubSpot.com startups. Good morning, everyone. I'm Mark Dent here with Drea Hudson, and you're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. Today, we have a special episode for you. Hip-hop, the music genre that is undoubtedly the most popular in the world, is celebrating its 50th birthday this month. That's right, hip-hop has turned 50. To commemorate the occasion, Drea and I have interviewed the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. Trapital is a newsletter and podcast that covers the music industry with a focus on hip-hop. If you're interested in more about Trapital, you can check out their podcasts or sign up for their newsletter at trapital.co. But for now, we're going to talk about the business of hip hop with Dan. Everything from how early rappers defied the odds to become commercially successful to what AI and streaming mean for the future of the genre. All right, Dan Runcy, thank you for joining Drea and I today. We're excited to have you here. Mark Drea, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. All right, Dan. So starting off, you have you know made a career out of just kind of analyzing, writing about, discussing the business of hip hop. Why is the business of hip hop so fascinating to you? And why is it something that you think should really be analyzed so closely? What first stuck out to me was how cutting edge and always on the pulse the entrepreneurs in the space were and everything that we're doing. Being a kid, watching the moves that Puff Daddy would make and how they would go about marketing their product, getting it out there, and how record labels thought about getting people to buy CDs and everything they would do with music videos and pushing things. That really fascinated me. I take it a much more traditional path, had studied marketing in school, went to business school. Mm -hmm. But there was a case study that came out when I was at school that was about Beyonce's surprise album drop. And I remember when this album drop happened, it seemed like such a huge deal in the moment. This was innovative marketing. And after studying all of these classic examples that we had seen in years from companies like Crowdcork and Seal and Ryanair and all these companies out of your standard business school case studies, I wanted to see more of what Beyonce just did. This is where innovation is going. And that's what started me on the path of writing purely as a hobby, sharing my thoughts about the space hmm. in medium and places like that. That eventually grew into doing different freelance opportunities. And then from there, that's when I saw where media was going, where trends were going. And I said, this needs to have a proper home. So that's when I started Trapital. And of course, with Trapital, you have interviewed a lot of famous hip hop artists over the years. It's interesting you brought up Puff Daddy there from when you were growing up and watching him. And he really was someone who combined business skills along with rapping skills and production skills. So he was kind of the second generation of hip hop stars. It was in the 1970s when hip hop first got going 50 years ago this summer in the South Bronx. And it just kind of stayed there at house parties for a few years. Dan, which people were kind of some of the first in hip hop to bring marketing into it, to bring business into it, to actually turn hip hop into something that people could buy in those early years? The first person that stands out to me is Sylvia Robinson and what she had okay. done with Sugar Hill Gang. They, of course, released what many people feel is the first 
big recorded music hit single that hip hop has had, Rapper's Delight. But the backstory of that is she's then driving around New Jersey and places trying to find these artists. She sees what's happening on the street level and she says, we need to get these folks into a studio and we need to start Sugar Hill Records. So to see the innovation huh. that she had as a Black woman doing that, always stuck out to me. And we've clearly seen so much more that has happened over the decades, but that's the origin place that we saw. Yeah. And so she did Sugar Hill Gang. Of course, Rapper's Delight was their first big single, but, and then she was also with Grandmaster Flash and, and The Message in the early eighties. Yep. That was the true, like, Hey, let's start selling records. Was there anything else that happened in the eighties or the nineties that sort of combined business together with hip hop in other ways? Yeah, the next big push that we saw was Def Jam and the start of that label. So that's the mid-80s. They got LL Cool J as a teenager. They have the Beastie Boys. And you started to see more of the branding that came through. There was a particular vibe. There was a sound that came with Def Jam. And so much of hip-hop and the business of hip-hop is the marketing and being able to push products and have people bought into a feeling that stems broader than the music. And then you also saw Run DMC as well. Yeah. When they have their My Adidas song comes out, they are in Madison Square Garden. They take the shoe off. They hold that Adidas shoe up into the air and then they see everyone else in the crowd follow along. That's when you also see the power of this. And those are some of those moments that build and you just see how that continued to snowball and grow over time. We continue to see that happen in the 90s. I look at someone like Andre Harrell and what he was able to do with Uptown Records. They were also selling that feeling, selling that lifestyle and to tie things back with Diddy. Mm -hmm. He adapted a lot of what he learned from Andre Harrell. Diddy was an intern at Uptown Records and then used a lot of that same playbook to do what he did at Bad Boy as well in the 90s. Right, right. And, you know, Dre and I were talking earlier about Dr. Dre. I mean, you were thinking that he kind of changed the game a little bit, right, Dre? Yeah, totally. And it's funny that you mentioned like Run DMC because I always think of them as like pioneering an entirely different category of business when you've got a brand like Adidas really kind of coming in, leveraging this artistry to actually like amplify and promote product. And I think that's something that is continued to go on and is happening right now. And you have, you know, New Balances signing Amine and Jack Harlow, and you've got Reebok signing the Kendricks and all of those different things. It's been an interesting play for businesses to work with creators in that way. And of course, we saw everything Dr. Dre and Eminem and 50 Cent had done. But Dr. Yeah. Dre stands out to me from what they had done with Death Row, because in the 90s, we started to see more evolution with the economics of the music industry itself and how artists, especially hip hop artists, it started to approach things differently. The 90s was around the time we started to hear more and more troubling stories of artists that were getting hosed by the deals that they were doing. Right. Whether it was TLC, we've heard the stories of how their music is literally making everyone accept them millions. Right. But in hip hop, we saw a few artists start to push more ownership of the actual masters and assets they had. We saw it first with Death Row Records, Suge Knight and Dr. Dre do a deal with Interscope where they're able to maintain ownership of what they have. So this is the early 90s. They sat on Dr. Dre's debut album, The Chronic, for nearly a year because they wanted to find the right distributor that allowed them to do what they did. 
a couple years later, 95, Master P, who was already a successful entrepreneur himself selling his music out of his car trunk and at swap meets, mm-hmm. he does a deal with Priority Records where he has his No Limit record label. They maintain ownership as well of their music. They're able to have a multi-million dollar deal and then they start releasing album after album after album to then maximize that and then making millions from that. And then additionally, we see in 1998, probably the most successful ownership-related deal we've seen in hip-hop, Cash Money signing a distribution deal with Universal. And that was a $30 million deal that they did. And that deal set the footprint for arguably one of the most successful record labels you've seen in hip hop. So many of the conversations we see now stems from some of those business moves from the hip hop leaders. Interesting question for you, Dan, is like, at what point do you think a lot of these artists and musicians realize the importance of owning their masters? I know, you know, when we're talking about like Killer Mike is always talking about owning your masters. So many people are talking about that. Like, was it the 90s that you feel like A lot of those artists were like, okay, we really need to own it. Do you think it was like later into the 80s? The big wave, at least with the big deals we saw, they initially happened in the 90s. We saw those big deals, but those are still few and far between. In most cases, the artists and the labels themselves were either imprints under other labels or they were signing more traditional deals. You started to see a bit more of it in 2000s. Artists like Prince as well would have their classic lines about, you know, if you don't own your masters, your masters will own you and things like that's ringing true with him and others. But it really isn't until the internet and how information continues to spread that we really start to see artists changing that narrative. Because with the internet, a few things happen. The barriers to entry lowered. So then artists had a much easier time reaching their fan base directly, whether that was through YouTube or through SoundCloud or through Datpiff, putting their mixtapes out on there, or finding ways to connect with fans directly where they didn't necessarily need to rely on the traditional gatekeepers to do that. That then helped artists build up a base. So then by the time they're in a position where they may want to or want to sign to a deal, they can do that, but they have a bit more leverage. So it isn't just reserved for these unicorn entrepreneurs like uh, Master P or like Birdman and Slim from Cash Money, it can be someone that also is a unicorn themselves, but do it in their own right. I think about someone like Nipsey Hussle, who would also push ownership as well when he was alive. It's almost been 10 years since he had his $100 mixtape where he's saying, hey, this is my product. I'm putting value on it. I want to sell it directly to my fans in this proud to pay campaign. And he gets insights from marketing deals that he's seen elsewhere in the food industry and things like that. And we saw that continue to grow. So I think the barriers eventually being lower. And then additionally, the way that information spreads and can reach people through Twitter, through places like that, you started to see more and more artists at least having some level of awareness about what they want. That said, there are still plenty of artists that do give up their masters. At the end of the day, if you're an artist and you want to be able to be the biggest artist in the world, you want to be able to perform at the biggest stages and all of those things, we still have always seen an alignment with the artists that have done that have had the major record label backing behind them in some way, at least in some point in their career. That may change over time, but I do think that there's a bit of that pull that they still have that allows that to happen. But we've continued to see more and more growth and discussion about the ownership importance. Definitely accelerated since things took off and the impact of the internet. 
Yeah. So, and obviously with the internet, as everybody knows, we went from like Napster to Kazaa to like now we have streaming. Generally speaking, just the actual music itself is not as lucrative. We were talking about, you know, 50 Cent and Dr. Dre there earlier. You know, Dr. Dre, Beats by Dre, 50 Cent invested in vitamin water. And these decisions were getting made at the time that the music itself was bringing in less money for hip hop artists. Hey, did that kind of drive, did the internet, you think, drive hip hop artists to realize, hey, we need to make money elsewhere? And then I guess be like, I remember looking at one of your newsletters where you kind of were talking about revenue streams for the artists and on the bottom is uh, music revenue. So like, how do things work these days? Like hip hop artists, how do they actually make good money these days? What we saw happen was a flip because back in the 90s of that era and even some of the structures of those deals that we talked about, the goal at the end of the day was to sell CDs. That was what was at the top for so many people. Artists went on tour to try to get people to sell more CDs. It's the opposite today, mm -hmm. but that was the wave at the time. But now things have flipped, especially with Napster and Kazai and all the other things that we've seen. Certain artists are able to make good money through streaming and artists that do own their rights have been able to do that as well. But a lot of those artists still do benefit from selling other high-end items and using their music as a platform to do that, whether they're able to sell high-end merchandise or selling vinyl or things like that. Things that even if the fans aren't listening to the actual vinyl record, it's the feeling of that ownership of product and being able to have that experience. And I think now you look at someone like 50 Cent Vitamin Water, he has been a case study in the business of music and hip hop in a lot of ways, because mm. even though he didn't necessarily have, at least in the early days, him owning the masters and things like that, at least from what we saw or what we knew, he was able to leverage this platform elsewhere. He had G-Unit sneakers and they were able to have their run of success. Eventually, I think there were too many sneakers in the market and then there were some challenges that some of those had, but they still had that. But then when things come around for this vitamin water deal and this opportunity, he then sees that as Okay, at that point, there were plenty of times where artists were getting checks for particular things, but no, he wanted to have a stake in it. They gave him Formula 50, his new flavor. He wanted to have a stake in it. The amount of money he's actually made from that deal, I've seen a wide range of numbers, but he did do quite well for himself. Yeah, but it's definitely a lot. <laughs> yeah, but it's definitely a lot. And it's likely more than he made from some of those yeah. albums that gave him that opportunity. But that's what we see right now where the people that have been the most successful in this space, they have used it as a platform. And the line that I've always linked to, we mentioned this in the Culture Report, it's our annual breakdown on trends we've seen, but artists have become millionaires selling music, but they become billionaires selling products. Totally. And those are products that are either launched from companies they own or companies that they've invested in, companies that they end up selling to others. And that's what we've seen time and time again. And whether it's Jay-Z or Rihanna or Dr. Dre, that's how they did this. You look at Dr. Dre as well. Sure, things worked with Death Row up to an extent, but the record label ended up failing. And then eventually Dr. Dre starts Aftermath. But it isn't until Beats by Dre, that's them starting their business, selling the product. And then they're able to see even bigger returns. And that's what we've seen as well with Rihanna as well. Specifically, she was a successful artist for decades. And then she has... Fenty Beauty, she has Savage Fenty, two companies that in their own individual right worth over a billion dollars. And she's a key stakeholder in both of those. And it's still very tough for artists to get there. 
But having a platform like that gives you a opportunity to leg up. And if you can identify what lines up with your audience, what are they most interested in, you have the platform to be able to build successful products and companies and then have a user base to be able to leverage that from a consumer perspective. Totally. What I've seen or what I find to be really interesting is when you talk about like the Jay-Z's or like even talk about like the Drake's of the world, like they're diversifying their portfolio so much that the music hardly is still a part of who they are. Like as an individual, they're owning sports teams, they're opening restaurants, they're buying many cities. And so I think to your point, like diversifying that revenue stream is extremely important. I would love to know, like, in your opinion, do you think musicians can achieve a desirable level of success without productization? Or do you see it as like a requirement to becoming successful and maintaining that success at this point in the game? I don't think it's a requirement. I do think it can help the right artist. In some ways, it can also hurt artists too if it becomes too much of a distraction. But we have seen artists who have been able to make sustainable careers in the streaming era from their music. Some of those mm -hmm. artists are artists that either A, own their rights from their music, so they're retaining it, they're not sharing that with anyone, or they're finding other ways to sell the actual music itself, not just selling products. I look at artists like Russ or even an artist like LaRussell and how they're able to do well with streaming or they're selling their fans, whether it's cassette tapes or vinyls or CDs, other forms of the physical media themselves, because that's what they want to be able to engage with. So there's ways that we've seen it where artists have been able to make it work for them. More likely than not, it like those success stories do tend to lead more towards the artists that are unsigned, they could still be working with the distributor or other partners, but they're not under a traditional record label deal. Certain artists have still been able to do it where you have artists like NBA Youngboy who has been releasing music very consistently through streaming. Yeah. Currency is another one that is always releasing his music and mixtapes. So they're playing the volume game. They're able to put out their music at a high frequency level, taking advantage of the fact that the barrier entries are lower and they can share music with their audience every couple of months. So they may not get the same amount of revenue per album that a much bigger artist does, but because of the frequency that they're sharing, they might be closer up in those stats than others. And that's how they're able to use the streaming era to their advantage. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when you talk about, you know, somebody like NBA Youngboy, who just is releasing just a lot of volume and <laughs> to say the least, uh, and there's plenty of other artists who are doing that too. And, and not just in hip hop. I mean, I remember reading studies of how like songs are just getting shorter so people can listen to them more and more because that's how it works with streaming. So we have that going on. And, and then also artists, because they're not making as much off of music, they maybe feel like they have to kind of diversify their revenue streams. I don't know, Dan, do you think, is it good for music, like overall, maybe a negative for music, neutral, the fact that there are those incentives out there? I think it's a neutral because I think we've seen different models exist in other sectors. And I think part of it is the framing because I still look at artists performing and going on tour as an example of them selling the product. They are yeah. doing that 
in concert settings or in festivals, but that's still a version of them doing that. And it makes me think that even though these things are often segmented because of who are the main stakeholders, I still look at it collectively as being part of that umbrella because that still is part of the music. That isn't necessarily you starting a fashion line or you just trying to sell something else. I look at gaming, for instance, and gaming in many ways, we've talked about how large that industry is and, you know, nearly or over $200 billion, I forget the exact number, but you still do have console game sales as a piece of that industry, but the largest piece of the revenue there is from mobile games. And that doesn't necessarily take away from the pie from the other aspects, but it just shows you how different it is. And then another aspect as well is the revenue that comes from these digital environments, whether it's in Roblox or Fortnite, where the games are free to play but right. people are buying additional skins or things like that. It's a very different business model than people rushing to buy that latest Legend of Zelda game that just came out or people buying Call of Duty Modern Warfare a couple of months back when that game was still doing strong numbers. But I highlight that to say that we've seen the diversified revenue streams that are still under that umbrella of gaming and being able to talk about that, even though those streams, many of them are growing and some of them aren't growing as fast. And I think we likely see similar in music if we think about both what the in real life and the digital experience as being one experience. I don't remember if it was last year or the year before that, but when Travis Scott came through for that like Roblox concert, like I thought that that was like absolutely bonkers, right? Like we're talking about this cross pollination of entertainment, gaming and music and really like meeting the fans where they are. That's an entirely different element of business that I don't think a lot of other musicians have been like tapping into the way that Travis Scott was able to tap into. So it is pretty wild to think about the way that musicians can innovate when it comes to themselves as a product and making sure that they're spanning beyond just the typical streaming or typical in-person concert, if you will. Yeah. Travis Scott specifically, that run that he went on, especially 2020, I remember the stat. It was Forbes or someone else reported that he had grossed $100 million in revenue from everything he did. It was combining that Fortnite concert that he did. I believe he had a drop that was in collaboration with the Tenet movie that had came out as well. He had something that was lined up with the PlayStation 5 that had came out around that time. And then he had that McDonald's meal too, the Travis Scott meal. (laughs) Didn't he have cereal? Or maybe that was 2019, but- Yeah, uh, (laughs) he did have cereal. It was that same year. I think he had, it was like a Reese's Puff that he was on the box of. And it was a e-commerce operation that he just had. And every time he had something, there was a new drop. There was this. So not only was it the money from those deals, but he turns it into something. And in many ways, he leaned into the hype beast, supreme culture, that drop culture of selling hype that we've seen. And how do you sell things limited? How do you do that? And that's been a whole nother thing where I think there were other artists that did it before him, but he definitely took it to another level. And it very much fit with where the current demographic is from just customers in general, where the audience that he was reaching, those 18 to 24 year olds, especially a lot of those audiences overlapping well with gaming. And I think it served him well. 
Yeah. We were talking earlier about like the roots of hip hop and it really took a few years before they really monetized anything. I've been working on this story about samples. So I've been talking to some musicians who are around in the 80s when like it was the wild, wild west for samples. As they told me, it was like you were just excited to have a chance to record a song. You were just excited to have another gig. Nevertheless, even back then, especially in New York City, you know, the hip hop kind of moved from the South Bronx to like Manhattan and downtown and Brooklyn and everywhere else. And hip hop culture was everywhere. But it seemed like the people who were making the music, who were really the part of the culture, were not making money off of it. And it just seems like now everybody who is making the music, who is in that culture, is just finding all those revenue streams that you just discussed to make money off of it. It just makes me think like, wow, the founders of hip hop, I would hope that they think that this is phenomenal right now. It's been an interesting discussion because folks like LL Cool J, folks like Swiss Beats have talked about the position that a lot of these founders have been in, the pioneers mm-hmm. of hip hop, the forefathers that made it possible. They didn't see the Travis Scott money. They didn't see a lot of the money that came through. They made it possible for it to happen. But like you said, they were the ones that were happy to get into the booth. They were the ones that yeah. made the music that everyone now knows, but they didn't necessarily collect the money. And it's great to see them on stage every now and then. But again, they didn't necessarily have the benefit of being able to experience what a Travis Scott or even what an Eminem and some of these other artists that went on to be some of the most commercially successful acts that have ever touched a mic as a hip hop artist before. So one of the things that LL and Swiss wanted to do, they wanted to create a founder's fund or create an opportunity to pay Mm -hmm. back to those legends because they knew that they set the stage, but they are not living the same way that even LL and Swiss are, right? LL Cool J is someone that in many ways is a pioneer himself, but he was able to pivot that where he's hosting all these award shows. Those are opportunities that we didn't necessarily see for Melly Mel and some of those folks. I do think that the origin of Versus, which Swiss Beats did Mm -hmm. found, was part of this because they were able to bring back legends. It's also the folks like Earth, Wind & Fire. It's the Gladys Knights and folks like Mm -hmm. that being able to pay tribute to the Black artists that made this possible. And then additionally, when Versus got acquired, they got acquired by Triller, they had that clause in there to make sure that each of the artists that were versus participants at that time at least got some cut of the money that came through. And even someone like DMX, who back in the heyday was a peer with Jay-Z in many ways, even more commercially successful at one point than DMX was, especially in the late 90s. But DMX wasn't necessarily in the same borders and discussions. We all know about the trial and tribulations and addiction struggles he had in his life. So being able to see even someone like him benefit and seeing his name on a cap table from a company that exited, those things are special. So I think about that. And those are some of the ways that I know those folks that are in that generation, those successful Gen X artists like your Swiss Beats and your LL Cool J's, how they've been able to make it possible to extend not just an olive branch, but also get some revenue back to the people that made this culture possible. I mean, you know, RIP DMX, Rough Rider crew forever over here. You're absolutely right. I'm interested in the type of consumer you are. Obviously, you do this for a living, right? Like you are talking to incredible thought leaders in the industry. You're talking to incredible musicians in the industry. Are you a vinyl consumer? Are you a streamer? Like, how are you listening to music these days? So I listen primarily through streaming. I'm pretty practical from that perspective, not too exciting anything there, but 
I do always try to check and see what is the latest, even if I'm not necessarily listening. I think checking places like Rap Caviar or even some of the other more emerging based playlists feels like a duty to see, okay, where is the pulse? Where are things right now? Checking Spotify's top 50 on a regular basis to see who's here, what songs are staying on the charts, because it informs a few things. One, it helps someone like me, especially from my purview and my interest, see what is the rest of the world living to, because the way that these algorithms are based it's very easy to continue serving you what you want to hear. And that's how many of us relate to music. We fall in love with this era of music that comes out from the time that we were in middle school up until the time we're in our early 20s. And that in many ways informs the music that we want to listen to for the rest of our lives. And the algorithms know that and may keep you in those areas where that's what keeps you listening to more and more. But it's also understanding that Spotify itself has a distribution skew when you look at where its customer base is relative to all the music viewers of the world. You also have to check YouTube and see what's trending on those charts as well, because they do have a bit more of an international base and see things there. But every platform has its skews. So I think that's one thing that's a little different where that's always existed. But just because of how pervasive and how many more options there are, it does require you to have at least a bit more of a pulse to see what's there. But with so much music, I mean, we see the stats, tens of thousands of tracks being uploaded to digital streaming providers on a daily basis. You have to follow along yeah. close to make sure you're not missing things. Definitely. Of course, a lot of people are listening on TikTok and you know Spotify. I know, I think it was just two or three months ago, they announced that they were going to be adding some new video content. Things, they change in music. 17 years ago, we were still on Kazaa. And, you know, seven years before that, we were still going to Sam Goody or something like that. Tower Records. Yeah, Tower Records. And so where do you think listening to music is going here in the next few years? Part of the reason for that shift you mentioned with Spotify is understanding where music discovery happens. And a lot of that happens on these short form video platforms, primarily TikTok. Mm -hmm. And right now, while TikTok is launching and figuring out its own music streaming service, that TikTok to Spotify pipeline is real. And both companies want to be able to capture more of that. You want to be able to keep that in your ecosystem. So I think from Spotify's perspective, realizing that it is the dominant player, at least from the audio listening experience, it generates more money for the music industry than any other sole entity. So for them, if the discovery is happening off that platform, they want to be able to find ways to bring that in. The big thing that is the focus for so many people in the industry right now is AI and how AI specifically is going to continue to impact the experience, not just for listeners, but for artists themselves. And I may have read something of yours from not long ago where you suggested that everybody's been talking about AI in part because of fakes and the kind of Drake weekend thing that happened a few weeks ago. But you've suggested that it might actually end up being a good revenue stream for some artists that could use AI. Yeah. Well, I'll take it in two ways. One from the artist perspective and one from the fan perspective. From the artist perspective, derivative music and being able to capture more value from what's already been created has been the secret sauce for the music industry for several decades now. You mentioned sampling earlier, Mark. When artists first started to sample music and want to put it out there, there was a lot of pushback. A lot of yeah. people were protective about sampling. They didn't want it out there. But you saw how successful songs like MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This, where he ends up making Rick James more money than Rick James ever made off a of Super Freak. You saw that happen again, where Bad Boy and Puffy, that was their whole formula. Take hits from the 80s 
and just make it sound <laughs> even more special and yep. unique. And he's able to essentially do the same. There was that viral clip a couple weeks ago of Sting saying that he still got $2,000 a day from I'll be missing you. And Puffy said it was yeah. 5,000. I don't think either of those numbers were true, but right. <laughs> it still just highlights the power of those. And I bring that up because I think that's an example of music's derivative work unlocking value. I think you saw it even more with the barriers lowering, whether it was things like auto-tune and we're able to see how artists were able to augment that and make new music opportunities that didn't exist. You see it as well with beat production and how it was no longer reserved specifically for the Timberlands and Dr. Dre's and the Neptunes that while they made great music, they had control of the customer and supply and the record labels and folks like that. All of those things just helped increase the pie. And I think AI can do the same because the same way that sampling is derived off of something else, if the AI is derived off of the person that is the source for that, it's only going to be as relevant as that source person. For There's sure. no random AI song that captures the zeitgeist. It's relevant because it's Drake. It's relevant because it's The Weeknd or Taylor Swift or Ice Spice. So I think the more that we can realize that and find a correct way to apply some level of attribution, which I do think is possible. It was just 10 years ago that people thought it was going to be a bit of a challenge to get YouTube videos and other user-generated content to be able to have attribution tying back to the song and then being able to make sure that artists get compensated. How do you figure out if an artist doesn't want their video over some type of vice or unsavory content or something that they yeah. don't believe in? We're able to have the content flags up to figure that out. YouTube has a whole team that figures this out. And I think we've seen the same happen on the short form video platforms too. And I do believe we can do the same with AI. And this is how you continue to unlock new opportunities, make music even more interactive because as gaming has showed us interactivity is where the money is and the more that you can do that you can continue to have this industry realize more of its real value there's just such a consumer surplus the pricing power is really high so those are the things that can help tap into that dan i'm interested in whether or not there have been any release that has really kind of like gotten your attention in the past year or so from a marketing perspective one that stands out to me, and it's almost two years now, but I look at Tyler, the creator's Call Me If You Get Lost so and good. the whole release that he had had for that because there were a few things there. He had always wanted to team up with DJ Drama, but at the time, he felt like the ethos of what DJ Drama was wasn't aligned with Tyler. DJ Drama was seen as the person that had their pulse on the latest things that were gangster rap. But in a lot of ways... Tyler, the creator, wasn't necessarily aligned in that same type of way. And a lot of those same people shunned him and looked down on him. So there was always a little bit of him that was like, oh, I want to be able to make sure that I can get my foot in the door here. So you have that element. Then secondly, Tyler has always been good at creating characters and turning his album into these people that you're taking on this journey, whether it was the album before he had Earthquake and he's wearing that yellow wig, Igor, you have his fans <laughs> having vote for Igor signs everywhere. And I think he took out a new persona with that Call Me If You Get Lost album too. He's Tyler Baudelaire and he's this world explorer that's going around in different places and made it feel more like a cinematic journey. You're following this person through these storytelling elements. That's really unique and special. And he drops vinyl a year later. 
not too many months ago, he then has essentially his deluxe version where he has a few more songs. And it's from that same album that came out two years ago. And that's impressive in an era where I think a lot of music releases can come and go like a news cycle. He's able to do things consistently. And I think it speaks a lot to the longevity that he's had in his career. Totally. I just have two really quick questions. I'd love to know what your first concert was. Yes. So my first concert I ever went to, I think I was nine years old. My parents brought me to a Harry Belafonte concert. So Dang. we're Jamaican. That's our roots there. And he, of course, is uh, one of the most successful artists and activists to come from Jamaica, both inspiration from a music perspective and from what he stood for. Passed away recently, but that was the first one that I ever went to. And I think we went to go see him a couple of times. What are you listening to these days? Like, what's on the playlist for Dan Runcie of Trapital? Oh, good question. So I did check out the latest releases that came from the Tyler Creator album that I mentioned to see what those were. Baby Keem's another artist that I really do enjoy. And then Ice Spice is another person that I've been tapping more into. I mean, it's been fascinating following her career, both from my work, and we have a piece that's going to be coming up soon about her. But additionally, I do think that she's approaching things in a unique way. And it's interesting to see how her flow and her vibe fit in. And it's my way not just to stay tapped in on what's going, but I think she has some good songs. Well, Dan Runcy, we really appreciate you coming on with us and talking all things hip hop and covering a lot of ground with us. Mark Dre, this was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for tuning into the Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor today is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. We've got a lot more tech and business coverage in our newsletter. So if you're not subscribed, please get signed up at thehustle.co slash email. We'll see you tomorrow. Hey, everybody. Let me tell you about this great podcast that's available right now. Creator Science, hosted by Jay Klaus, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, which is the audio destination for business professionals. Creator Science goes behind the scenes with today's top creators. Through narrative interviews, Jay Klaus explores how creators like Tim Urban, James Clear, Tori Dunlap, and Cody Sanchez are building their audiences today. And by learning how these creators make a living with their art and creativity, Creator Science can help you gain tools and confidence to do exactly the same. I was actually listening to an episode recently where Jay had on Dr. K, who is a Harvard psychiatrist. And Dr. K helps a lot of creators with performance, burnout, and dealing with a lot of negative feedback online. It's a great hour of conversation with Dr. K, where Dr. K really breaks down what it means to be a creator today and the burnout that a lot of creators do experience and what to do when you get that burnout, because you will. And you can listen to Creator Science wherever you get your podcasts, and I definitely suggest it. Listen to Creator Science wherever you get your podcasts.